0: Hi, this is Guy Gilchrist, Jim Henson's cartoonist and you're listening to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show where nostalgia comes alive Welcome to Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show the podcast where nostalgia comes alive Since July of 2021, Jake and his friends have interviewed professionals in the worlds of acting, directing, writing, puppeteering and many more Who will they be chatting with in this week's interview? Find out in this Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show episode.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show. When nostalgia comes alive, I hope you here with us today as always. I'm your host, Jake Devin Barber. Today as always, on coast, Chris Bixby, and, and Matt Bingle will be joining a little bit
0: later. How are you, Chris? Doing good, Jake. How are you? I'm doing great as always.
1: Thank you for asking. And Chris, what do we have for today?
0: Yeah, so again, happy you're here with us, everybody. Uh, We're very excited about uh, today's guest. He is an animation veteran. He worked at Disney for a number of years. Uh, He created shows such as Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers and Darkwing Duck, and also worked on a number of other projects, such as the Aladdin movies, uh, Buzz Lightyear, Star Command, a whole bunch of things that we're going to talk about. And here he is, Tad Stones. Tad, happy to have you here. How are you?
2: Hey, I'm doing great. Hope you guys are doing well, too. Yes, yes, Ross. Thank you.
0: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, so to start this off, so for those who don't know you, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do?
2: Uh, Well, I'm retired now, but I had a 40-year career in animation and a little bit of ride design. So I started at Disney in Disney Feature Animation in 1974. Uh, My first feature I worked on was the original Rescuers, And did Mm. some story work on Fox and Hound, then moved on to some special projects that combined education and animated storytelling. And that got me moved over to WED, which is now known as Imagineering. And I uh, worked on a couple of rides at uh, Epcot Center. Both, uh, well, three rides, actually. One didn't get made. The first was the Transportation Pavilion, The World of Motion, a ride that no longer exists. But I got to spend at least nine months in a very small room with Ward Kimball, one of the animation greats that, you know, was at Disney at the very beginning. Um, Then I worked on the Space Pavilion where I got to uh, meet George Lucas, among other people Uh, that didn't get built because there's no space company who could afford being in Epcot. And then finally uh, worked on the Imagination Pavilion with Tony Baxter, Barry Braverman and Tom Morris. And uh, most of us will be getting together again in the end of September at uh, Retro Magic down in Florida uh, to talk about the Imagination Pavilion. Anyway, went back to the studio, worked on some Epcot documentaries, uh, which weren't made. Um, I had a lot of projects like that. Uh, And finally, uh, was about to go back into features when uh, they were, but, you know, they didn't have a spot waiting for me because you know they were continuing Mm -hmm. to do features Mm -hmm. um but they had some special projects uh for me to work on or to help develop over in the licensing division and uh, ultimately those same people were the ones who started tv animation and they wanted me over there when the regime changed and uh so the good half of my career was at tv animation starting with well actually i was technically a Executive, a creative manager. When I first went over there, and in a couple of months, I moved on to being the story editor on the third season of Gummy Bears, and co-producer, and then came uh, Rescue Rangers, Darkwing Duck, and then Disney spin-offs, uh, Aladdin and uh, Hercules, uh, and uh, finally Buzz Lightyear Star Command. Nice. And then along the way, did uh, director videos, and uh, I think the last director video was. Uh, um, There was gonna be an Atlantis series and then they uh, canceled that, but we had enough episodes done that we put that together for a direct video called Milo's Return. And uh, then left Disney in 2003. And after that, worked around the industry at uh, Universal. I did a Bear Rabbit, uh, New Adventures of Bear Rabbit video. Um, I did two uh, Hellboy films uh by darkwing were probably the highlights of my career and uh did some work on bob's burgers and uh finally did a show for netflix called uh, kulopari the army of frogs and uh, then retired and uh, i've been going to conventions whichever convention invites me and i sell artwork there and do panels nice so here you are getting a free panel <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. so so, before uh,
0: starting a career in animation, how did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
2: Well, I uh, was born in Burbank, literally across the street from the Walt Disney oh. Studio. Oh, wow. Um, and my dad worked for Carnation Company. Now, Carnation Company was always affiliated with Disneyland from the very beginning at a Carnation Company cafe. So, the company once a year had a company picnic at Disneyland. And uh, there used to be in Anaheim where the pirates of the Caribbean currently are it used to be a, just a big grassy park with, you know, park benches and stuff. Uh, and that's where they would have the picnic and then, and they would set up a tent and they would do the golden horseshoe review and they would play bingo, which is seemed normal at the time for me. But now I look back and say, you know, Disneyland is like 50 feet away from us right now, right through those gates. And at a certain time of day, they opened up the gates and, we all spent a day at Disneyland. So I got to go to you know Disneyland at least once a year. Um, and one of the things they had was an art of animation exhibit and uh, you know, bah, bah. My, my dad had wanted to be a, a, a comic strip artist or an editorial cartoonist. He didn't get a chance to do it, but I had plenty of support when it came to drawing or cartoons and that. And uh, we bought an art of animation book, which basically told about the process and i always played around with that and uh you know that was you know in college. in college basically uh the sweet mate of my girlfriend was the daughter of a disney imagineer and she knew about this training program at disney for animation and i had never heard of it and uh, i applied um, and got in you know and the girl i was dating is now my wife so that worked out
0: Uh nice
1: that's awesome so what inspired you to get into animation
2: well i always loved it i mean i like i say my i had there were cartooning books around the house because my dad's interest uh including a correspondence course the famous artist cartoonist course and uh that my dad had gotten and i just poured through that and then the um preston blair had done a one of the Walter Foster books, uh, which are still around in every art store. Uh, and the animation book had all the basics of how to design characters and what animation was. And uh, I always loved that. I loved that, I love comic books and uh, wanted to go in, into either. Uh, basically when I was in high school, um, I felt like, well, the only place that I want to be an animator at is Disney, because they're the only ones doing full animation. And that's what I was interested in, although I enjoyed TV animation. Um, So I was focused on that. And my feeling was, well, they have their guys. (laughs) You know, they're not looking for more, which actually was true in my high school years. And about the time I went to college is when Disney started saying, hey, we should start developing younger animators. and they created training program, which was really one man, Eric Larson, and they would look at portfolios and then you'd work with Eric if you didn't know the basics and you do a little personal tests. So you got two eight week tests, I believe it was. And uh, that was it. After that, you graduated and became an in-betweener, which I was terrible at. It was almost fired because of it. I was so bad at it. <laughs> but uh, luckily I dodged that bullet.
0: Definitely. And I know um, when you created a uh the Disney cartoons back in the day, you uh co-created most of them with uh Alan Zaslov. Um can you share any of your fondest memories from uh working alongside him?
2: Well Alan was great. He was uh you know older than I was uh Alan worked I think he got coffee at Termite Terrace even, <laughs> way back which was where the Looney Tunes were done. Um I mean he was just a little kid and then he was at UPA Studios. If you know your animation history, UPA Studios was the cartoon company that started doing uh, more graphic design, getting away from the typical Disney look, for instance, and rather than right. the aping what Disney was doing or the Fleischers or any of that, uh, they did Gerald McBoing Boing and uh, you know all sorts of other you know series that were experimenting with the medium much more and Alan was there for that. And then, uh, he worked in TV animation, worked on the Smurfs and all that. And so he was brought over to Disney TV, um, for DuckTales. Actually, they really went needed some experienced people who knew how to get production going and all of that. Right. So basically when we did shows together, I was the guy doing the creative pitches and watching over all the, the stories and, all that. And Alan would put together the teams and then generally he would take one of the teams and become a director on it. Um, so he looked over the storyboards and that of his team. And I basically always looked at all the storyboards, no matter who is doing it because of my background, I was, you know, I think it's maybe a little more common today, but back then, there were very few people who did art and writing and, uh, and since I knew storyboard stuff, I, my scripts were more visual and I could check to see if the staging was, you know, good to to get the gags across that we were going for. Um, you know, although obviously a tremendous amount of work and uh, I could only catch so much, but we got better. We, I think more of our gags worked on Darkwing than they did on Rescue Rangers. So I was always trying to improve the percentage of the vision I had for scripts. And then the what ended up on screen. Nice. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and speaking of rescue rangers, you you you, it's actually one of the shows that you both created. They the rescue rangers. How did that come about?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, actually, let's see. We would have gong shows, uh, for Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Richard Frank at the time was head of television. Uh, A gong show, to be nostalgic for a bit, this must be the place to do that, right? Uh, There used to be a TV show, Chuck Barris's Gong Show, and it was just simply a panel of comedians, three comedians, and then a stage, and a contestant would come out, and they would put on a piece of entertainment. They could sing, they could dance, they could try telling jokes, they could juggle or whatever, but they had like 30 seconds to perform and then after that safe 30 seconds, any of the panel could hit this giant gong and then a, literally a hook would come out and drag the person off stage. Uh, the uh, And they would comment on how terrible their act was or whatever. And then sometimes they were totally amused and those people won the check or something at the end of the thing. Um, anyway, the gong show is what they called it when, uh, The first one I was at actually was very early on when uh, Michael and Jeffrey came to Disney Studios. They had a gong show for feature animation, and we all showed up. There were like, man, possibly two dozen of us around there. You know, of of everybody from you know anybody in story to all the directors to the you know various units. and you were told to bring in three ideas. And the idea was that you pitch it in a couple of sentences. And um, they w- if it didn't catch them, they'd say gong. And it'd go to the next person. And the idea was we'd go around our table three times. Uh, I was sitting next to my friend Ron Clemens. Now, Ron went on to do mini movies with John Musker, like uh, little things like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, mm-hmm. Moana. Uh, princess and the frog treasure planet um anyway the uh ron actually pitched the little mermaid at that session and it got gonged they said no you guys just did that movie it was a great movie it was called splash it was taking the little mermaid story and putting it in live action and ron you know tried to explain it would be something entirely different but the guys again they were thinking of the major concepts and they just said no you you did it you know next and i totally forget what i pitched but uh at the end we only got through one it was a saturday so they let us go home um but ron handed in his page or page and a half whatever it was that he wrote about little mermaid when they finally saw that they realized oh wait this is a, a completely different movie uh anyway so that's the background of what a gong show is and how it was handled in Disney animation. Uh, so we had a gong show at, at TV. And uh, one of the things that was submitted was by Ken Kuntz, David Weimers just gave me the name, not much else called Metro, oh, excuse me, Miami Mice. Now that was when Miami Vice was a huge hit on TV. Well, the guys always liked a catchy title they expected you to do a great show, uh, but if you had an intriguing title, the idea that you'd get more audience to say, well, what's that thing? And then it'd be up to you to keep them. So they're always suckers for that. So they loved Miami Mice right at. And I remember that Richard Frank says, well, what are they gonna do, investigate drugs? And they said, no, cheese, and that was enough. And previously we had pitched rescue, uh, The Rescuers Not seriously, we didn't have to. We just said, well, Rescuers was a series of books. We could do a rescuers show. And Jeffrey said, no, we're actually doing a sequel in features, Um, which was big news because it was the first sequel, the features had done. Um, But then, so when this came up, they said, make this your rescuers. Um, Anyway, I forget whether it was, we got legal weighed in or whether I just said that name's not gonna last, but we quickly changed it from Miami Mice to Metro Mice. And it was just a mouse police st- you know, station story. Um, and we even had some artwork done where they were holding guns, which was weird. They weren't squirt guns, as far as I know. <laughs> they didn't have big plungers in them. It was like, what were we thinking? Uh, we did a sample script where the character Fat Cat was created. Um, It was by Carl Gears. I worked on it with Jim Magon and Carl. Um, But At the end of the day, we realized it was too limited that a police station, when you look at a cop show, if you take murder off the board and violence, you know, is every episode going to be about a jewelry store heist? So uh, we just felt like it had to expand more and more. So we just came up with the idea of let's just put together a, weird team of you know some force of justice or whatever um, anyway we started coming up with with uh, characters we kind of felt like we were headed towards something I remember on a driving trip I was just going over I came up with the name Rescue Rangers um, and it just felt like perfect nobody knows what it is so we can define it turned out previously there had been Lassie in the Rescue Rangers I didn't know that at the time um anyway um we pitched it it had similar characters to what we ended up with except there was an additional like a martial arts cricket and a chameleon who could blend practically invisible she could do plaid but it hurt um and then the leader was kit colby uh who is this mouse in a little aviator's jacket with a fur collar um they actually loved the show but they said we don't feel anything for your main character. Now that was the same morning I pit or afternoon I pitched um they wanted char- new characters for the second season of DuckTales just to have something to promote other than hey here's more episodes. Um so I pitched an alien duck, Robo Duck and Bubba Duck. Uh Robo Duck actually um Bec- he became Gizmo Duck eventually. Um, Bubba Duck kept the name. Uh, that was again. I had no f- on Gizmo Duck. I came up with the name Fenton Crackshell and the basic concept. But really, he was developed by again Ken Koontz and Dave weemers I think did the most development on him on Ducktales. Uh, Bubba Duck, they just it was a name and a drawing that I had done, and they took it and ran. And like I say, Alien Duck didn't go. But I felt like. Well, did I, maybe I just didn't describe this Kit Colby character well enough. And he said, no, we got those other guys in one sentence. You know, come on, you have a, and Jeffrey said, look, guys, we like the show. It's just not a home run yet. So the meeting moved on and we, DuckTales is a huge hit. Um, We went down other classic characters, you know, just the Disney family of characters. And uh, we weren't gonna do Mickey because Michael was very precious about Mickey saying, we have when we do Mickey Mouse, it has to be right. Uh, Donald Duck was kind of in DuckTales, very hard to animate. Um, Goofy, they said, yeah, do something with Goofy because he's already a character who's an everyman. Uh, anyway, they weren't gonna do Pluto. <laughs> and then it got to Chippendale Rescue Rangers and it was Michael Eisen who said those guys in that show, meaning our rescue ranger show. Uh, And that's when Jeffrey said home run. And so we were up and away that required ditching characters of the team because you couldn't have too many in the team, but zipper stayed, gadget stage. This Australian mouse called kangaroo rat called Billabong became Monterey Jack. And uh, then we had two leads, Chip and Dale. And uh, Chip got to keep the aviator jacket with the fur collar and uh, dale got his and somebody gave him an indiana jones hat i don't know where that came from i worried that it was a little too on the nose for our little adventure and then dale i put in a hawaiian shirt just because back then not everybody was wearing hawaiian shirts uh it was just kind of a crazy loose thing that i fit you know fit dale's personality more uh so that's basically how those guys came up and then it's about coming up with episodes and because um we could kind of write our own purpose for the team that we could go all over the place with stories
0: nice and uh kind of similarly with uh darkwing duck how was that uh created
2: um there's actually some misinformation out there about the about this when you're at a creative company like Disney, it's still pretty big, even TV animation, which was not that big. But there's always circles of people and people start, much like fans do on the Internet, they start connecting dots that not that aren't necessarily there. Um, so some people point to um, Double O Duck episode, which does factor into it and the Masked Mallard or the Midnight Mallard, something like that, where Scrooge became a superhero. To this day, I have not seen that episode. Well, how uh, Darkwing came about is Jeffrey Katzenberg ordered me to, uh, again, they love the funny names. He said, create a show with the name Double O Duck, but he said it can't be Launchpad because the whole point of the show was to create a new character to merchandise and all that. so uh my heart wasn't really in it. This is before even Austin Powers. I just you know, I did a pitch. I think I at one point Gizmo Duck was added to it. Um he might have been early on in some ideas where because I saw some artwork with Launchpad in it so that didn't quite make sense. Anyway, it was just we put in a, a Donald Duck look like, you know, because we weren't at this point we're not designing the character, we're just having a stand-in for the, the pitch. And we gave a mask and a hat um, and a cape. Again, I don't remember who said, put him in a mask and a cape, but we needed he needed a secret identity because the show didn't really gain any traction until we added his daughter in. Um, anyway, the uh, backing up a little bit, my first pass in it was just a straight James Bond parody with all the expected stuff in it. And Jeffrey looked at it and said, this is just a James Bond parody. You know, there's no Disney heart in it. And I agreed, you know, and then it was like, I was very lucky that he didn't just assign it to someone else, he told me to do it again. So um, the nice thing back then, we had all, all of our story editors were on staff. These days you get hired for a specific show. And uh, when you actually have a term contract at least usually that's how it works and you have a term contract that means basically disney owns all your ideas you come up with in that span span of time or at least they would like you to they would like you to believe that um anyway i called in a bunch of storytellers that i know i wanted to work with and some of them had been on rescue rangers and others hadn't but i showed them the artwork and we just talked about different things how do we how do we make this spy not a James Bond parody kind of thing? And Dwayne Capizzi, who did the animated ALF and um, uh, Jackie Chan and Men in Black and stuff like that when he was at Disney, uh, he looked at the picture, which was this you know duck in a white tuxedo, but with a mask and a cape and a hat. Uh, he said that picture looks more like an old Pulp Magazine hero-like the Shadow or the Green Hornet, and that clicked for me instantly. Because I, you know, I wasn't old enough to have listened to all that stuff, but I knew it because I read comics, and comics fandom overlapped with old radio and pulp fandom, and uh, I loved that. Especially there were pulp heroes who had crazy accomplices, like eccentric characters who helped them out, and that was like a different way of giving a spy a backup team. That wasn't Q and M and Miss Money Penny and all that. It was like a different vibe. Uh like I say, we didn't really gain traction until not that we had the catchphrase back then, but afterwards we said, what if Batman had a little girl who refused to stay at home? When Goslin was there, that added the Disney heart. Um Launchpad had always been in the, you know the perimeter of the show just because of his original connection to double o duck and uh so he became part of the mix and instead of having this big team we pared it down to just this trio that was the heart of the show um so we they liked the show we went out and started selling it as double o duck and then uh, cubby broccoli was the name of the producer who produced most of the bond movies and uh they informed us or at least their legal department (laughs) informed us that Double O is not a thing. It's, there are no double O agents in MI6. Um, that was Ian Fleming who came up with that. And you can't have it. <laughs> you can't use it. So we had to come up with a new name. We did a contest. And ironically, um, Alan Burnett, who was at Disney at the time, won with the name Darkwing. I said, that's perfect. That's who he thinks he is in his head i added duck on because it made it sillier which is more to the feeling of the show and uh dark ducks was born and we jumped in and then within a year i think alan left disney went to warner brothers and became the story editor of the batman animated adventures and alan stayed at warner's doing all the superhero stuff until he retired just a couple of years ago
0: nice So I'm kind of curious, do you have any like favorite Rescue Rangers or Darkwing Duck episodes?
2: Uh, Rescue Rangers, no. I barely remember that stuff. I mean, we're talking 30 to 40 years ago, whatever it is. Um, And Rescue Rangers was, I worked way too hard on that in that we had fewer editors on that than we should have. And I was working... 13 hour days let's put it this way my day off was sunday and i only went into the office for four hours um and it just burned me out it was so we just got that that's there's probably in some ways a lot of me in that show because it was practically stream of consciousness i often wrote with writers on it like there were times when um The writer would write acts one and two. I would then edit those acts and then write acts three myself. Um, So nothing like that sticks in mind. Darkwing it's no particular episode, but uh, the actual, the pilot, the real pilot, not the multi-parter, but um, an episode called That Sinking Feeling. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, animated in Australia. That was the script I wrote to say this is what I mean by Darkwing Duck. And you look in there and you see a lot of the relationships are very clear, it had beautiful animation done by Australian studio. And um, it was just a funny show. And I, then I'm fond of the shows that kind of played with the medium. We mm-hmm. did uh, comic book classics, which was um, as different people, Darkwing was insane, incensed that there was a comic company putting out Darkwing Duck comics and they made him look like a coward. And so he said, I could write a better script and started writing the script. And then everybody else wanted to sit down and write a few pages, especially Goslin. Um, but every time somebody different wrote, the adventure that was somehow happening in parallel to that uh, would change to the extent where somebody put down a coffee cup, a coffee mug on the, the artwork or on a script and then Darkwing and Launchpad would slam into a giant coffee mug on the adventure. So it was like, if you sit down and try to explain it, it, there's no logic to it, but it's very funny. It's, you know, it was much akin to, um, uh, what's the Daffy duck classic, um, whatever Daffy is interacting with the animator and is, Oh yeah. Yeah. Races his body and, and, you know, does duck a Um, you know, it doesn't quite that crazy, but very close to it. You know, so I really enjoyed that one. Um, those are two that always stick up. There's one with Splatter Phoenix where they're going in and out of paintings at a museum. Um, I thought was great. Um, fans love the two-part Justice Ducks. Um, anyway, it, to me, it was just fun coming up with the crazier concepts. You know, I you know, have a lot of fun in those still hard for me to watch the show, but it's because I always see them and say, oh, I should have done this, or I should have done that, or I should have
0: Like I could have done this better or something.
2: Yeah, I mean, and a lot of it is just like how fast we had things to do. It struck me once that there was no rivalry, you know, really between, at least not at the creative level, between like Warners and and Disney, because a lot of artists and writers would, cross back and forth between the studios depending on what show is up and all that uh but one of the guys who had been at warner said that they were they were allowed every season to something like they had three scripts they could throw out and my jaw dropped it was just like you're allowed to you know basically if something wasn't quite up to par they'd say nah it's just not working we'll come back to that later maybe but we didn't have that we got to the you know the deadline if you didn't think it was quite right it had to go into board and you would give more notes and boards to make it better and then you know at the end of the day went out the door so um you know that was you know we were limited by time and money of course as uh, most television production is definitely
1: yeah absolutely um so so now you served as a producer and director on the Aladdin movies. What were your experience like working on those?
2: Well, Aladdin—it was a little weird. I actually, again, my—I used to share an office with Ron Clemens. Uh, uh, in fact, we're supposed to go out to lunch soon. But uh, the uh, anyway that, um, so I always thought that well, Aladdin is Ron and John. So I asked them about it. And they had no problem with us doing it. Um, the, um, you know, the adventures for, for better or worse, maybe there's a different way of doing it, but I kind of felt like, does anybody want to watch a show about a married couple? You know, at least in our demographic, you know, because at the end of the movie, it's kind of like, yeah, Aladdin and Jasmine are going to get married, obviously. Um, but the movie was about the adventures of a street rat and so basically we came up with a kind of convoluted story to um, explain why they weren't married yet. And considering they were both like 16 or something like that, it was like for present day, that's not a, a bad thing to put off marriage a little bit. Right. Um, anyway, that multiparter turned into Return of Jafar. And um, the, because the other character, if you take Robin Williams out and the genie out of that movie Easily the funniest character was Iago the parrot. I said, oh, yeah. Gilbert Gottfried is so great. Yep. I would love to have him. As such part of the a group. wonderful character
0: you, and actor. I mean, um, yeah, you know, and you
2: and you wanna you wanna have a you know some friction in the group for humor. And he and them and Abu the monkey became kind of this crazy team who didn't quite get along but always got into trouble together. Um, anyway, that so return to Jafar explained that too. Uh, my favorite episodes of Aladdin, at least the stories, sometimes depending on the execution, it was like, well, that was my favorite, but it went to a weak studio. And Now this is my favorite because it went to a good studio. Um, were the ones that were more mythological who there was one where, you know, practically a beauty and a beast where this kind of vegetable king, you know, was enamored with uh, Jasmine out in the middle of the desert. Um, love the story of the sand shark, just the idea of this giant, you know, killer whale or larger sized shark that swam through the sand. I just thought that was such a neat concept and all that. And uh, we had uh, a great layout guy, Paul Felix, who later went to features, but he did uh, some concept sketches. Like when a script would come out, he, did, he just feeling out kind of even before the character designers got to it, would basically do a piece of artwork in pencil that was always incredible. And and we get us thinking in different ways and uh, exploring possibilities. And he really loved those mythological episodes too. Um, so it was, you know, the big thing is, of course, we didn't have Robin Williams. We were had um, uh, Dan Castellaneta, who now people know as the voice of, Homer Simpson was our genie and Dan is a great, you know, improv person, you know, as well as, you know, you know, just a smart guy all around and he did a great job for us and, you know, would throw in other voices here and there, but, you know, his genie made it different than Robin, but still, you know, fun to it. Um, So it was again, uh, always in retrospect, it's like, Oh, I should have pushed harder for more myth shows, but, A lot of that is, um, I guess, why management liked me as a producer is I always had to keep an eye on the production schedule. And uh, in Darkwing Duck, for instance, we did a story called Twin Beaks that was based on Twin Peaks. Uh, I thought that was a great idea to do a parody, but I stressed to the writer that i said this has to work for somebody who's never seen the show because our audience is probably not staying up that late and is probably not watching twin peaks um and he did a pass on it an outline and it was like no this is this is too inside and some of your gags are just doing a animal character of a character that's in the tv show and it's like yeah we there's a log lady in that show and we have a log duck in the show it's there's nothing there if you don't know the original um so in fairness to the that writer i said i have to take this one over because that judgment call is going to be totally subjective to me as the showrunner so that came out to be a really cool fun episode um And one of the story editors who didn't watch Twin Peaks came and he said, I love the feeling of that. That was so different and all that. We got all excited about, we should do more like that and find other shows to kind of parody, but we disguised the parody element. Um, It was a great idea, but you have to go with the shows or the stories that present themselves to you. And unless a story editor takes it on himself to say, I'm gonna come up with one of those shows It's like, well, here's something a writer pitched me, and I think it's a pretty good episode. What do you think? And I can't put that aside and just say, no, I'm waiting for some bit of genius based on a TV show parody. Uh, No, we had to go for that. So same in Aladdin, I would love to have seen more mythic shows, but that's not necessarily what people were pitching us. Um, But still, I think overall, and we did, you know, at a certain point decided we needed a different kind of a villain. And uh, we came up with, okay, what if we had an evil Aladdin? And that was Mosinrath, uh, who's named after the two writers, Bill Motz and uh, uh, Bob Roth. So Motz and Roth become Mosenroth, And they've currently are writers and producers on um, The Ghost of Molly McGee. They've done several shows. Oh today. yeah. Um, which I think is a great show too. Uh, So, I mean, that was fun, you know, playing with that Aladdin universe and, um, you know, again, trying to get the feeling of the Arabian Nights. And then finally, because Return of Jafar was so successful, they wanted another one. And with Aladdin and the 40 Thieves, had a little more time to do it. We got Robin Williams back. um, And that, I think, had a little more substance to it, a little more unified story and and some good songs throughout so oh, yeah. i was doing aladdin yeah and i always felt like ron and john were like you know looking over me which they weren't you know and in fact i you know having started in features i always felt self-conscious doing these you know these much lower cost features but uh talking to uh, mike gabriel who was one of the directors on pocahontas he said is there gonna be a pocahontas tv series i and there wasn't and I you know and I said no I don't think so uh and he kind of felt like let down because to him it had become a tv series is a mark that oh your movie was so popular it gets a tv series
0: definitely and uh you also mentioned uh working on or creating the tv adaptation of Aladdin as well as Hercules how did how did those come about
2: um well with Aladdin it was pretty much straight across. We were just trying to say, okay, I need an excuse to keep him as a street rat. Um, here's the reason why Genie is back. You know, it was just kind of setting up logistics and it's like, okay, now let's tell short adventure stories and plenty of comedy. Uh, Hercules was harder and it was less me, I think, and more uh, Bob Schooley and Mark McCorkle, who later did um, Kim Possible oh great show yes oh fantastic show Um, they uh, anyway they did a lot of heavy lifting on that at one point we sold the idea the main thing was um, going with a teenager instead of Hercules at the end which was funny because Ron Clements was a big fan of Superman comics growing up and he felt like they had done a perfect setup for a show because then you go on to tell the further adventures of Superman. And they were, you know, <laughs> agog at the fact that instead of doing the end of the show, we did the teen years. But for us, it was just, it gave us a hook. One, Superman is hard to write for, you know, same with Warner Brothers that found out the same thing when they were doing their Superman TV show. Um, the, because kind of, his emotional arc is done. So you're now, where's our story gonna come? Whereas in high school, it was like he had these incredible budding powers, but he's still awkward. And there's all the school is full filled with uh, other mythological, you know, characters, You know, various deities were in their teen years. Um, but Mark and Bob really had the genius touch for that. Uh, I was mostly on, you know, production I mean, watching over the production, I mean, he still had input on stories and things like that. But um, they were also, we did some celebrity casting. Not that it mattered to the kids watching the show. That was just more fun to have, you know, various celebrities come in and, and do a, a, a character. Uh, and then they were a genius. Bob, I think, especially had the ear for the comedian or the actor, actress that would you know, they'd say, oh, what's their famous character? Okay, I'm going to write toward that. And it made the renditions of the various characters more unique, you know, more fun. Again, those people didn't cost any more. They were still paid the normal amount, but um, they could record in their pajamas if they needed to. Um, you know, they didn't have to get, go through hair and makeup to show up at a recording studio. Uh, and it was just fun you know, back then. And, uh, you know, it was a way for, and they, again, they are actors. It's not like, Oh, a, a regular voice actor would be better. It was like, no a regular voice actor would be different. And I always used voice actors throughout all my shows. I mean, that's who did, you know, rescue Rangers and, and dark and, you know, Jim Cummings, I would always want to use in a show and Rob Paulson and, They were all great. Um, Anyway, just gave a different tone to that show. So that was a lot of fun. Um, And then Buzz Lightyear was after that. And it was a matter of um, the challenge was the humor of Buzz in Toy Story is he's a fish out of water. It's a guy who thinks he's a spaceman and he's actually a toy on Earth.
0: Yeah, so I love um, Buzz Star argument. I actually have uh, the pilot uh, film of it. There Ed you go. DHS. Yeah. Beautiful,
2: beautiful, you realize I sing on that.
0: If, beautiful pilot. If,
2: if you listen to the, uh, the end credit song that's sung spoken by William Shatner, the backup singers of the Little Green Men is actually me oh the wow this is all speeded up so there's uh, a bit of cool trivia one. for you so, nice anyway the challenge the challenge of buzz was you know instead of a spaceman playing against these characters who think he's crazy but he's on earth as a toy uh he was a spaceman in space um so we kind of came up with the idea of the cadets and and how he would train with those um the hard thing about the start of that show was um, usually our syndicated packages were usually 65 episodes. Uh, if you had a creative team doing one 65 episode, then a different team would do the next one while the, that team who did that show, went, done the first show, would go on and do the third show in line. You know, So there's always overlapping, you get kind of a break. For whatever reason, They wanted uh, Mark, Bob, and I, who had done, who were doing currently the, you know, Young Hercules, uh, to do Buzz Lightyear, and that meant we had to develop while we were still working on the show. I tried to get Mark and Bob to take Fridays and give it to the new show to develop. I couldn't get them to do it because there's, there's always too much work to do. So you can't, unless you're willing to arbitrarily say, I will not answer questions about that show today. Uh, And they just couldn't do that. So I did a bunch of early development on it, but when they guys, guys finally got clear, uh, they basically, I had a lot of visual stuff that they could work with, but some of my story development, they just, they didn't naturally gravitate to. And I, I'm a big believer in, you hire creative people, and then let them be creative, you know, uh, you guide them the way you want it, you don't necessarily order them, or dictate to them, uh, you always give guidelines, somebody has to be in charge, but, um, so, and these guys, I knew were going to be there, at that point, they were going to be executive producers with me, so it was like, you know, I'm not going to order them to do something else because one, they're at the same level I'm at, so I can't order them. But how are they going to write for a show that they just don't feel comfortable with? Anyway, we went through a lot and finally we were on our way. I had pitched a science fiction show immediately after Darkwing Duck that a lot of people in the staff liked, except the division boss just didn't get it. And so it was very frustrating Uh, So finally, Buzz was a chance for me to do a science fiction show. Uh, The the fun thing about the pilot was that we pitched Buzz Lightyear Star Command to Michael Eisner and whoever the executives were in the room. And we said, okay, this is gonna come out, this series will come out before Toy Story 2, which had started its life in TV animation as a tune movie. And then, you know, Laster took it over and took it to Pixar to do as a, a full feature. Uh, and Eisner had no problem with that. He said, okay, no, just go ahead. So we started in production. We were well in production. And for whatever reason, we had uh, another series of pitch, kind of an update. Here's where we are in the show to Michael and a slightly different group of executives. And the different executives said, wait this can't come out before Toy Story 2. It'll totally confuse people about what the movie's gonna be. It'll take away from the hype and the the need to see the movie. And Michael, totally forgetting what he had said before, said, yeah, that's right, we can't do that. Uh, So it didn't matter to us. It didn't change our production. Uh, But in a good way, what happened is that that meant we had the production finished before we had to do that pilot movie. Because usually You start doing a show like Darkwing Duck. We start doing episodes and all that. And then at the point where you, it's like, now I get the humor of the show. Now I understand the character relationships. Okay, now here's the date we have to hit to get the pilot done in time to be the first thing on the air. Well, now with Buzz Lightyear, we didn't have, it could be the last thing we did. And the benefit of that was all the layouts were done the rocket ships were designed we had all sorts of villain designs so all of that that would usually eat up time and money was all done from the series uh and the money in the budget could all go toward new stuff or more special effects or whatever we needed so the show ended up i think anyway that little film ended up being you know much better looking than um it normally would have in the usual circumstances, and then someone said, "Well, you know, as a we had Patrick Warburton was our Buzz Lightyear, who was hilarious and, and oh yeah, fantastic, wonderful um, actor." Well, they said, "Well, wait a minute to make the transition because of Toy Story 2 being with Tim Allen and all that, maybe for the to video link, we'll have Tim Allen do the voice." Now it's already been animated so tim had to do adr meaning and you've seen this on back uh, behind the scenes films i'm sure and that is you're listening in a headset you're watching the motion picture and a beep goes it's like there's three beeps and then the fourth one is when you start talking the fourth mm, silent beep. right uh so you have to say the line of dialogue matching what the character does uh well, it drove Tim Allen crazy because Patrick Warburton has a totally unique voice delivery. You know, you know, you just from Putty on Seinfeld to Cronk in Emperor's New Groove and light Lightyear. He's just got his own sense of humor is, and it drove Tim crazy because it was totally not the way Tim would normally say a line. Now he's not imitating the uh, acting but he has to match the same pauses and you know lip read in the on screen. Uh to so drove him a little bit nuts, you know. But I again I love Patrick Warburton's thing, but Tim Allen being the voice of Buzz Lightyear, you know, gave that video a little more status and you know, sold great. Definitely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So So, so now after leaving Disney, you started working at Universal Cartoon Studios. Can you talk about your work with them?
2: Well, it was really just the one project, although I think we worked on some pitches while we were there, but Tom Rosica had been the head of production, uh, at TV animation from the very beginning. And when he heard I was available, um, he immediately called me up and wanted me over there to work on this project so um that was great it was a much smaller team i got to there's a sequence in there um kind of my homage to pink elephants on parade but i wrote um storyboarded art directed well i didn't write it because the song was done by somebody else but uh, storyboarded and art directed the whole sequence in that i did color breakdowns in every scene because it was all effects and stuff um and staged it and storyboard i did a lot of storyboarding on the movie uh that normally i wouldn't been able to do um, so that was a lot of fun it was a totally different system very small crew and um uh, you know the end result was super nice you know it came out very nice got very good animation from overseas and uh in fact we went overseas to um to Taiwan to actually meet with the studio and to talk to the animators and all of that about how it should be done. So it was cool,
0: nice. And uh, this is this that's is our good. other uh, co-host Matt. Hello, Tim. Hey, hey, Matt, How are
2: you? Hi, I'm
0: I'm doing good. I want to apologize. I was extremely late. I Had a phone call to take. It was way longer than I thought, but I'm I'm happy to be here now. Uh, no worries what oh, right.
1: happens.
0: That's it. That's, here that's here. good. That's good. <laughs> nice. I'm I'm happy. I made it. Um, <laughs> So, let me see what we're at here. I yes. Uh, You uh, then went on to direct,
2: produce, and co-write the Hellboy films. What were those like? Well, those are great. I mean, the last thing I did at Disney was we had uh, a Team Atlantis series, which was a spinoff of Atlantis. Made it every bit as action-adventure of the movie. Um, We're having incredible fun with it. Everybody kind of knew this was something special. Um, and the sad thing about it was the executive, who's the one who let me go, by the way, <laughs> why I wasn't still at Disney. Um, he fought harder to get that sold than the previous executive who told me this. He says, I would have stopped two weeks ago and he fought for it. But once he sold it, I thought it was going to be on toon disney at the time a a cable you know outlet of disney's um but instead it was for one saturday morning and i kind of i kind of knew it was gonna be in trouble because one saturday morning you know had taken over the disney feel for more you know went from Gargoyles and Mighty Ducks and whatever else, and went to a more Nickelodeon feel of Pepper Ann and Recess. Again, all great shows, but totally different tone. So the idea that Atlantis was going to be at the end of that, it just didn't match at all. And it was kind of shoved down ABC's throats. They weren't happy about it. Um, But we were having fun. (laughs) We are doing great stuff. But the sad thing is the writers were way far ahead so between, you know, you're, you're so far ahead on scripts, and then beyond that, you have outlines that have been finished. And beyond that, you have premises that you've sold and are ready to go. So we're like 30 plus episodes in, and we knew how much, you know, how, you know, obstacles we were hitting, you know, by this executive. For instance, we, we, we did a great episode that no one will ever see but a great script for the Loch Ness Monster and it you know they mentioned well shouldn't this be more like in search of like at the end we don't know whether there's a monster there or not and I was like no that's an adventure show there's going to be a monster you know uh we did a show about the Bermuda Triangle the overall premise of the show was that Atlantis had been once this incredible civilization with these flying vehicles. They spread across the world, the known world, spreading their culture. And there were various artifacts there that were all powered by that Atlantean jewel. Uh, When the original Atlantis adventurers repowered that jewel, these artifacts that had been sitting in museums or personal collections, were all re-energized. And it turned out you thought that was a nice paperweight. No, it was a portal generator or something, you know? So that was the idea that, where it had some sort of mystical power. So the idea was very pulpish that they would go around the world wherever they heard about strange occurrences that they think might be because of the crystal, the Atlantean technology, and they would go and and look into that. anyway um when atlantis was shut down i mean the artists came onto the project and everybody was super excited they were saying this is the best thing we've ever done because they were in those early episodes with the loch ness monster and the cthulhu kind of creature under the ocean that made it into the video um and all these ghost things and supernatural stories and a mixture of real adventure along with you know humor of the characters. Um, meanwhile, the, the writers are like bloodied and bruised from all the fights they're having down the line. Uh, Atlantis came out, the feature film, had a disappointing opening weekend. The studio felt it was better to kind of withdraw support from it rather than trying to say, oh, how do we get people into the seats for this and it made more sense as more of a tax write-off kind of thing anyway that was all that ABC needed to say we're not doing the series anymore so on whatever year that was Friday the 13th uh 80 people were laid off now luckily it was a short hiatus and they were all or most of them then were put on to other Disney shows while we licked our wounds and came up with whatever next thing could be um anyway that long story was just to say hey there was a show called team atlantis and it ended up as milo's adventure um but i got to work with mike mignola for that that mike at first he read the scripts and he was impressed with the scripts and then he didn't really have the time he said just describe what you need and i'll do designs and we'll take it from there um so we did that and then after i left disney i said mike i need um, sample scripts to show around as I'm trying to get employed. Um, and he very nicely let me write two Hellboy scripts. So I did two half-hour Hellboy scripts just to, you know, show around what the adventure could be. And he gave me notes on them so they're true to his vision. Um, and then he said, I really can't put this much energy into something that's not happening. And I understood that. So, um, but anyway, You know, Atlantis, when we started it, I always said, well, this is my chance to do Hellboy because I'm never going to get to do Hellboy. Um, I pitched it at Disney, by the way, but it did not go. Um, Anyway, suddenly I got to do Hellboy. (laughs) So that was incredible, working closely with Mike and and, uh, working on those stories and um, being able to do a suspenseful horror horror movie Mm -hmm. for my own taste as opposed to in scooby-doo things are telegraphed in that if there's a haunted house it's a it's a spooky looking haunted house lots of spider webs and things like that and shaggy and scooby already you know knocking knees and shivering and they probably say it's it's a haunted house you know whereas when we did that you know thing in the Hellboy movies, uh in the second one anyway. We let them split up and they each had a supernatural experience that sold that it was there's ghosts here. Um the, the execution wasn't always as much as I wanted, but you know, again the you know the concepts were all there. So it was just fun being able to write that. And I was a huge Hellboy fan. The um uh, uh, I know a lot of times people would show up at San Diego Comic-Con saying, oh, I've been a big fan of the show and, you know, or of the comic. And people would say, yeah, yeah. So like you bought all the comics after you got the job. And it's like, no, I used to post on Hellboy, you know, message boards, you know, and and some of the friends I made there, I'm still friends with, and they've stayed at my house on the way to Comic-Con and all that. Um, So I really loved, you know, Hellboy and his universe. It's like here's behind me is all this Disney stuff. That wall is all the Hellboy stuff. So, um, oh wow, uh, oh wow, so nice. Tilted up a little bit. There's Mike Mignola original artwork and, and uh, uh, stuff like that. All right, back to the Disney wall. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, nice. Anyway, so it was a incredible project we were supposed to do many many you know i think they had the project for like seven years so the idea was to do it like seven movies you know smaller in scope that treating hellboy more like i don't know sherlock holmes or somebody who'd have a smaller case because guillermo del toro with his movies always went for the huge concept and and kind of rewriting the mythology that that michael had come up with Pardon me as I shift things around. Um, but the company we were working with was bought by Stars Media, and Stars said, Well, we really, we actually wrote a third script with uh, Lobster Johnson in it and the origin of Hellboy in it. Um, but, uh, you know, they said, We're not interested in. First of all, they bought the company largely for the library of movies that they had. Uh, and they were kind of surprised that they're there was an animation division and luckily the animation division did the Simpsons, um, which was a show they had heard of. <laughs> so, right. uh, I mean, they weren't writing the Simpsons. They were the production company that storyboarded and did the layouts and the actual production on Simpsons, uh, and still do, I assume. I uh, anyway, so suddenly our Hellboy movies just dis- dissipated, uh, you know, in the meantime, I did while well waiting for the go-ahead on our third Hellboy script, they had me do uh, *Truck Son of Stone*, which is a comic I remembered, you know, by Gold Key when I was a little kid going to the barber shop and picking up the comic books that were sitting there to read. Um, and it's probably the most violent thing I've ever worked on. And in fact, uh, the uh, guy who uh, who was the company who was you know, hiring us to do the movie, you know, question if I had the background because he's this Disney guy. they said, well, he did Hellboy and all of that. And he said, no, no, this is going to be visceral. And it's like, I remember we storyboarded something that was in the script, which was a guy being hit with a tomahawk sideways in his mouth. So basically it cut through his mouth and his head flopped back. And (laughs) it was in the script. Um, And we boarded it. And the guy, you know, watching the, you know, the story reels kind of went, oh, that's too much. It is too much. And I just said, it's in the script. So, you know, other than doing the classic, oh, shadow on the wall, except it was bright daytime. You know, I don't know how you would make it any less and get the idea across. Great. Um, so anyway, that was, you know, crazy time there. But, uh, you know, I came up with things at the end. Uh, luckily for me, my agent had made a deal that was for x amount of years and so when hellboy was canceled they wanted to let me go and the agent said "Ah, ah, ah, ah." (laughs) you know you got to pay him to the end of this year uh so instead of just sitting around or writing stuff on my own as maybe i should have done um i tried selling shows when i was there you know taking properties that other people owned, but then we would pitch it to them like uh are the Barbarian and the Herculoids are two things that we came up with a different way of doing and pitched to Warner Brothers and uh, pitched Cartoon Network and Cartoon Network said, oh, you have the rights to these? And <laughs> we said, <laughs> we thought, you had the rights to these. And it turned out Warner's is like a little less like Disney where every division they've taken over time, you know, has different little kingdoms in it. And it's like nothing got to go ahead unless they, merchandising was behind it at the time anyway, that they liked the project and they thought it worked into their merchandising plans. They could get enough toys out of it. Um, So never went anywhere. And I was always, which is fine, except that, especially with Herculoids, it's like, here's a little kid with all these science fiction monsters and space aliens. Sure seems like a lot of toys to me. Uh, And I just never knew if it got pitched to the right people you know i was just frustrated with that in that if it had and they said no no problem that's how things work um the thunder the barbarian was actually a comedic take on it because the concepts are so goofy uh the uh but we didn't even pitch it because as soon as we said thunder the barbarian they said no tim bruce tim has ideas for that i don't think he ever did them but that was enough to like okay we'll put down this beautiful piece of artwork and ignore it uh, so that was it and then i think i was unemployed for about a year and a half just like i had hit that point was i in my 50s probably somewhere in there we're just like you're too old to be hired um or to get a new agent to get taken on and all that so Finally, I got some scripts here and there. I worked on, did a couple of scripts for Generator Rec. Generator Rex, yeah. Um, which lasted two seasons, I think. Uh, also did a, did some storyboard work here and there on Ben 10. Um, uh, not much, just basically guys who used to work for me saying, yeah, I got something to keep you alive. Um, and uh, ended up, working at bento box and worked on, uh, was hired to do a show called neighbors from hell and then worked on uh, the pilot of another thing and ended up on Bob's Burgers Um, and Bob's Burgers, hilarious show, which kept me sane because it was hilarious, but it wasn't a good fit for me at all because on storyboards, um, we'd do them in the computer and you could then instantly do a story reel matching it to the dialogue uh i had a sequence where bob returned to the kitchen drunk and they actually had to pull drawings out of my board because my board was more animated than the style of show that it was um anyway you know for a while i worked on a pilot for disney called uh, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, which was just a pilot experiment produced by Bento Box. So the idea was if that sold, Bento Box would make it for Disney and I'd be in charge of that thing. Uh, but it didn't, didn't go ahead. And, uh, uh, and then I wasn't renewed at my contract at Bento Box. And then I ended up at Splash Entertainment where I did this show for Netflix called Kulapari, Army of Frogs, which was one of the more bizarre projects I've ever worked on. Made me write some totally different subject matter and kind of dialogue because it was very self serious. Um, I was hired just to be a director on it or the director on it. Um, But it was based on books by a former NFL, super bowl participant uh who i'm guessing had a a ghostwriter well i know you had a ghostwriter working with him because i worked with him um anyway i came on that and the guy was very big on hiring outside the box so he wanted a guy who did his books to do and his wife to do the script i said oh great so how many what What animation scripts have you done? Well, they've never done animation scripts. Okay, what scripts have they done? They've never done a script. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And so I inherited an outline and my head practically exploded because Splash is full of these professional people been doing animation for years and years and years. And it's like, how did you read this and think there was something here? Because it was just, you have to write visually Even if you're not writing visual gags, you have to see the movie in your mind and make sure you're describing things that you could see an animated character doing. And it was, a lot of it was just too fanciful. So I ended up, uh, I have co-writing project, people real nice, you know, that I worked with uh, the writers, but I totally rewrote their outline and then rewrote their script in just a couple, like three weeks to get this feature done and got it on the way. And in fact, when they decided to do a couple more episodes, the writer said, we're going to tell them just to use you, (laughs) you know, and they had no problem losing the job. They just knew what I was doing and they were learning a lot. But I said, guys, I can't. I was I'm still directing the other two movies. I can't do the writing on this one. Um, But because I was following the story from these books, um, it was just. Some interesting stuff. There's some heartfelt stuff that you know is cool to to write for these frogs. Plus, again, some of these other projects, there have been times when my artwork is on the screen. And like I said, in Burr Rabbit, I had art directed and storyboarded the sequence. Um, in this case, the title sequence were kind of my version of X-ray art done by the aboriginal people of australia um much more colorful and not being historically accurate but gives you the sense but it's actually my drawings that they put into after effects and created this cool you know title sequence so that was fun as a little perk and then uh, they actually have there were that was picked up by netflix for a second season but at that point i was at the point where i Was prepared to retire and I actually retired a year early uh, and I was lucky to be in a position to do so and uh, it was like nope that's okay (laughs) you guys go ahead because again all my schedules and budgets got lower and shorter (laughs) throughout my career Um, there was a moment where it looked like I was going to go back to Disney to do one last series a preschool show but and I didn't get it, went to the other person doing development, uh, which was fine because I realized in their process of development, it wouldn't be ready to go until literally I was the age of 65. And it was like, if it was my own idea that I had just written myself and, and, and was excited about, no problem, I'd be working still. But taking on an assignment and other people doing the this, this script or something, it was just like no, not, that doesn't have the, you know, the draw for me to to dive into it and give up the time. But okay. you know, would have been nice. I could I could have been the Alan Zaslav to a whole new group of youngsters, right? Like Alan did for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. So, um,
1: so now um, after. After retiring from animation, you started selling original art at various conventions. How did that
2: kind of begin for you for doing that? It was, it was, and it's been fun. Um, A trademark of my career is I always hire people who do things better than me. So I hire people who draw better than me to be character design designers. I mean, here and there, I've done character designs like the Robotic Vampire in Buzz Lightyear, Nose 4A2. I designed, they actually did a toy of, that's the one thing I have hanging on my wall. Uh, and it's literally my design, my colors, my everything. You know, that was very rare because I hire better people. So I was always self-conscious about doing my drawing. But right at the time I retired, I got my first invitation to a convention. Now I've been to conventions before to promote stuff. But this was being invited as a guest where they fly you there and they put you up in a hotel and give you a per diem. And this is for Mom- Momocon in Atlanta. Um, and they say, and you'll have a table. And I said, okay, great. I said, I have nothing to put on the table. I guess I better come up. You know, I'd only done a couple of commissions, you know, in previous years for just people who came up and asked of, you know, guys I knew in the industry. Um, Literally, maybe just two. Um, anyway, I sat down and said, okay, I'll sell this size, this size, this size. I talked to my friends who did it all the time for price guides. Um, and that's what, what started it. So I, for a while, I was doing, you know, three or four conventions a year. Again, they had to invite me. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make my living doing sketches now. So I'm going to buy a table. It's like, no, I'm, this has to be a no cost to me thing, you know, that I'll be do it and beating myself up over my drawing. Um, anyhow, it was a lot of fun. And in fact, I got to go to Belgium to FACS uh, convention that is held twice a year and uh, got to meet a lot of the Disney Italian artists. Uh, and in fact, one um, Claudio, and I might be gonna try to pronounce his last name. So I should. Anyway, I used to put his artwork. This isn't a good example of it. Uh, he did the character P.K., which became the Duck Adventure. Um, and uh, I used when I discovered this, and this is after Darkwing but um, they took Donald, totally new personality, really put him in these great adventures with you know, incredible artwork. I used to pin it up on the walls just to inspire people, saying, I'm not saying we're gonna do this show, but wouldn't it be cool if we could do this show? Um, anyway, I got to meet him, got to meet these guys who all did original art of, of Darkwing Duck for me and we traded stuff and all that. Uh, and then my second to last convention I did before the pandemic was actually in Moscow Uh, oh wow russia wow and that was an eye-opener i was kind of confused going up to it because they were trying to schedule me and they were just talking in in a weird way they're saying well we think you'll do signings for three hours and then two hours of drawing or, or selling this or and it just seemed like i mean i had like in belgium i had a line at my table but it was like 10 people deep at most it was a smallish convention um when I got there, there were people who were stood in lines. That girl, a woman in full cosplay, said she was in line four hours uh, and made many friends in line. But I couldn't believe that. I said, well, unless you've got there before lunch. And I took a two hour lunch where half of it is an interview and half of it is eating. I couldn't believe that. Uh, but the guys pointed out and I finally understood when I got there that Chippendales Rescue Rangers um, Darkwing Duck, I think DuckTales. And somebody told me Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were like the first animated shows to be shown in Russia after the Iron Curtain fell. So every child of that generation saw those shows, every child. Uh, And then they would go to the, kiosks on the weekends where people had bootleg tapes and would buy the tapes which would have like three episodes on them and watch them over and over and over again while we were there two policemen came up and were asking about how long are you guys going to be open and the guy's running the table with me and it was like instead of my one little table it was like four tables it was a comic company who had brought me over um they thought they were in trouble and the guy said, no, 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 no. We just wanted an autograph. And, you know, and I, I wish I had <laughs> pictures of my own of the guys, but they took pictures with me. Wow. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's what I said, that they all grew up with this show and that's a certain thing. So he was called the Black Cloak there. And um, and instead of let's get dangerous, he, it was a, a different phrase, like something like pull the chalks or... It was something like air pilots would say in getting ready to go. And it was purely a matter of lip sync. He Black Coke because trying to translate dark winged duck into Russian would be many more syllables than would fit in that duck's beak. Um, but that was incredible. I was like a rock star there and they were so friendly and, and just just. I wrote a huge letter to my crew, you know, put it online, saying like, you know, I'm the stand-in for all of you guys. Yeah, in animation WGA type terms, as the showrunner, I'm the creator of these shows. But it takes a village, you know, to character designers and background painters and color stylists and and obviously tons of writers and all that uh, to do these shows. And I said this this outpouring of emotion was incredible Um, and I said that's because of you guys it's what you did what we all did together and in fact going to those conventions uh, that first convention I for the first time learned that our shows could affect people more than just entertaining them Uh, again my friend Ron Clemens I came to Disney right after Ron Clemens right before Glenn Keane And those guys working on features could go into a movie theater and sit with an audience who was watching their movie and they know what's working and how effective it is, you know, because they're just hearing the audience reaction. We didn't have that. We had ratings that back then came out. Well, they weren't like overnights. They came out much later because it was syndicated show. Um, When I went to this convention, I had, Two women who didn't know each other, they did at the end, but uh, who said basically because they had a terrible home life where the father wasn't there or the father was abusive or something, that Darkwing and Goslin, his daughter, his adopted daughter, that their relationship was like an anchor to them. It just meant so much. And the next day, a woman vendor walked over to me and said, you know, I never watched cartoons when I was a kid. I said, weird thing to say to a guy in front of a big banner with dark green duck on it she goes except for this one and i watched it over and over and i watched it until i went to junior high or whatever and then i told her about the other women and and she goes huh maybe that's why and it was like well sorry about your life glad i could help um uh, hmm. so it, you know it was amazing to go to conventions i love it to just interact with fans and i've gotten better at my artwork um uh, But that all stopped with the pandemic, and I've yet to get an invite. And only now am I at the point, I mean, a lot of people got COVID at San Diego. Um, I'm at the point where if the convention's right, I could see going to one, but I haven't gotten any invites, nor have I chased them. I used to write letters to conventions, introducing myself and saying, hey, would you like me as a guest? Uh, So I may start doing that, you know, just to, before I'm, tool to walk down the aisles yeah. um, you know to, to make that connection you know? nice absolutely it's, it's certainly interesting how popular shows
0: like that became in Russia it's, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you know?
2: well here's the thing in Russia they pointed out to me that all the stuff we were parroting. so not only they didn't have cartoon shows there mm-hmm. were like mini shows they were usually about Russian folk folklore and the animation was minimal um so you had these colorful adventures coming showing a whole different world than those kids lived in uh but not only did we get credit for um darkwing having anvils falling on him they didn't have superhero shows back then so we got credit for superhero shows all the science fiction concepts like from 50s science fiction movies that we were making fun of they didn't have those either so we're <laughs> getting credit for all this stuff that we were you know, coming up with that was based on, you know, cultural landmarks from our country that were totally new to them. So the guy said, dad, we didn't know Darkwing was a parody. <laughs> so it's cool. That is cool. That's really cool. So to anyone watching or listening, what would you like to say to those who have supported your work throughout your career? Um, Just thank you. Thank you for watching and the one thing I totally disagree with is when fans they think they're giving me a compliment saying you know there's no good animation on anymore and it's like you know what you feel that because you were a kid when you watched these shows and they're bigger in your head I love the new DuckTales much more than the original DuckTales for instance uh, I talked about Ghost Molly McGee I talked to the guys the other day and I said you know, I look at that show, I'm totally entertained and I realized I couldn't make that show. It's a totally different sensibility. It's fresh, entertaining, I love it. Uh, it's not a show we would try to copy, but you know, they did are doing a great job of it or, you know. Um, so there's plenty of great animation on TV right now and there's more than ever. Uh, so I'm enjoying all that stuff. And I would say that to all the fans is like, hey, you know go out and watch some cartoons
0: definitely yes absolutely so
1: if people would like to connect with you where can people find you
2: i'm still on facebook uh i'm also on blue sky social which is still in the beta stage so you need someone to invite you onto it and you get limited amount of invitations i think you get one every two weeks Uh, And mostly I'm just following a lot of comic artists and animation people that are there. It's, you know, it's not as huge as what Twitter was. Um, And I have, I'm on Instagram, but I don't, I forget about it. I certainly don't read comments because I forget there are comments. Uh, Every once in a while I try to remember to post something. Um, But, you know, you can find me usually under my name, you know, just facebook and and uh, i don't friend people because i don't post anything that you need to be a friend to see um and it's I'm just about at my limit so you know i can at a certain point you you're not allowed to add more friends right um and then like i say i'm i check in on twitter only or excuse me on x um only to see if anybody is still commenting on something I posted before but generally blue Social, Blue sky is uh, just more relaxing for me um, and no I don't do TikToks sorry people <laughs> <laughs> links <laughs> so no will, like, no so will be
0: in the description below for people to connect
2: yeah alright thank you very much guys for having me
0: yes and to really uh, wrap this up the very final question that I'm going to ask is a question we ask all of our guests at the end so, of course, this podcast is called Jake's Happy Nostalgia Show. When you think of nostalgia, what do you think of? Or in your own words, how would you define nostalgia?
2: Um, To be is, is enjoying the things of your youth. Um, and the danger is automatically thinking that the things of your youth were better than what is out there today like I said before. I mean I grew up with The Lone Ranger and George Reeves Superman and um a lot of primetime shows that were rerun in the daytime. Um that was all fun stuff things that had terrible animation. I was watching them and eating them up. Um and I look at them now and it's like, "Oh no, those are pretty bad." <laughs> so uh <laughs> So I guess nostalgia is the rose-colored glasses we all look backwards with.
0: Yeah, it's great words. Yeah, it's good words. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tad, thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. This was fun.
1: Yeah, and thank you from thank you very much for being on. Thank you so much. You know, wait for what you've done our lives. You know, for what for what you've done, that we know your work, and you know, can I wait for? Thank you so much, and can I wait for? You know, what's next for you?
2: I'm uh, actually I'm doing some. It's it haven't been announced yet, and uh, so I guess I can't announce them here. But I'm actually doing some comic covers. Uh, like I think six, and uh, I'm on number three now. And it's a matter of uh, is that idea right? And uh, but I'm kind of pushing myself. I'm doing them all digitally and pushing myself more than I do even on my commissions um, because I have an undo button and I can do that. Oh, uh, right right so that's you know so that's what i'm doing right now and in cleaning out my office and stuff i found some old files of concepts i wanted to play with going through and it was like maybe it's time to revisit that com that concept as a you know equivalent of a graphic novel when i i always assumed i'd be playing with comics when i retired But, uh, and I started to, and then my wife one day walked in and and said, you can't spend 18 hours a day in that room. (laughs) And and I said, yeah, I guess I didn't end a lucrative career in animation for a non-paying career in comics. So, but I thought, and the other thing is I'm geared to think of TD series. So I thought, well, wait a minute, if I can think of a story with these concepts that played with since my time at disney um if i can come up with just a six issue story as opposed to an ongoing series then that is something if i need to i can self-publish or just put online as a web tune uh so we'll see I'll, you know or maybe conventions will start asking to have me come and that'll take up all my time so we'll see yes well tad yes. enjoy
0: enjoy the rest of your day keep in touch and i'll let you know when this goes up
2: all right, I'll send you some pictures.
0: All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, Ted. Bye-bye. All right. You again,
2: see you guys. Bye. See take care. See
1: you time. Yeah.
0: Bye. So goodbye from us as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. We absolutely, absolutely enjoyed our time with uh Tad Stones. And as always, keep on the lookout for more wonderful interviews. And what do we say, Jake?
1: Absolutely. As always. Keep nostalgia to anyone. Everyone. See you next time.
0: Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye thank you for tuning in to another wonderful jake's happy nostalgia show interview be sure to follow jake and the crew on social media and stream the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts and as always remember to keep nostalgia alive bye bye